Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. First off, happy Valentine's Day. Second thing, this is our one-year episode. We've been podcasting and doing this thing for one year. And for those of you that have been along for the ride since the first, I can't thank you enough. Due to a slight scheduling mishap with time zones, CK doesn't join us till about 20 minutes in, so watch for that. Without further ado, here's this week's episode. We're like a tenth of the 2% of the total population. And we're responsible for growing all, you know, we're doing the regenerative work. And when you think about it, like, so what is 2% of 330 million? And then we're a tenth of a percent of that. It is a small community, but it's growing. I mean, it's growing constantly. It's growing all the time. And that, you know, that really gives me hope. Yeah. Oh, Absolutely. Well, and just the excitement of it, just getting people. That's the thing. You walk into a room like that and the optimism and uh, just the, the people looking at, they're not just complaining about prices or the weather or whatever. It's so everybody's like, okay, what are we going to do? Here's the prices. How do we work it? What do we do? Here's the weather. How do we work that? What do we got to do? Doesn't do a whole lot of good to go to the coffee shop and complain about anything. No, no. Maybe if you have a plan, then you can go complain, but you'll just end up listening to everybody else's problems and that's not a good headspace to go to. No. Well, George, I appreciate you joining me this week. And uh, why, don't you, uh, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about where you're at and we can kind of go from there. Sounds good. Uh, I'm George Walker. I'm up in Princeton, Minnesota, which is about an hour north of the Twin Cities, if you know where the Twin Cities are in Minnesota. Um, about six years ago now, my wife and I moved. I actually was in Wisconsin for a lot of years. We moved back and put our farms together with my brother. So my brother and I own Walker Farms LLC. Okay. Uh, we base out of the farm that we grew up on or what's left of that farm. Um, and then, so it would be my, myself and my wife, my brother and his wife, and then my folks. Um, they live at the main farm. We do direct-to-consumer beef, pork, lamb, chicken. Uh, we do do t- turkeys once a year just for Thanksgiving. Uh, we sell some butter from a very, very small creamery uh, just northwest of us, Millerville Butter. Um, but yeah, all of our stuff is done direct-to-consumer. Around about 300 acres of leased land. Okay. So, um. So that's kind of what we do. Uh, when I was in Wisconsin, I kind of wrote notes about it. I mean, I went to 
Wisconsin to go to college for animal science at River Falls. And I was going to move back home. And I had a conversation with my dad, and this is before they sold out. He's like, well, you can come home, but we can't pay you. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's going to be a problem. <laughs> that, that might not work. No, that would make things a little difficult. So I ended up staying there. Uh, I had done an apprenticeship when I was 15. I had started uh, a farrier apprenticeship, so shoeing horses. Right. And so at that, by that time, I had a pretty decent clientele going on and was able to get into that world over. And River Falls is a big equine area, a lot of eventing um, horses, barrel horses, I mean, all kinds. So I was shoeing horses full time, farming. And at that time, I did the grass fed beef and pork and lamb, but I did it through a CSA model. Okay. So, you know, you have subscriptions. And then you, at that time, we delivered once a month mainly into the south end of the Twin Cities in the local area. So I did that and was shoeing horses. Uh, what else? Ran trucks. I've done a lot of things. Ran some semi-trucks in the wintertime. Uh, for eight years, actually, I farmed with teams of horses. Oh, really? Yep. So I was, I've always kind of been in this deal, like, how do we do this? And, you know, listening to this podcast and others, you know, it's like, we're trying to do this in the most holistic way we can. The, the buzzword then, of course, was sustainable. Right. But, you know, how that works. So I was looking for a way to how do I do this in a quote unquote sustainable manner and had a local gentleman and said, well, I'll, you know, I'd like to learn how to drive teams. So he taught me how to drive teams. I had four Belgians, you know, and ran most of my, ran the farm with four Belgians and one Alice Chalmers WD tractor. So I, I want to hear some more, some more about that. And, and we can, we can circle back around later, but I want to hear, I want to hear some more about what it was like farming with teams. Yeah. Yeah. It was a, a fun eight years. If I could, I would do it again. But the interesting thing is, is once you go from that point into the regenerative area, we need so little traction as in, you know, tractors and stuff like that to run our place, even teams, you always think, well, because we're not feeding much in the winter, you know, we're doing, setting everything out. We do bale grazing. Okay. Um, we try to do it kind of Steve Kenyon style, you know, throw names out there, but we don't get everything out there in this fall. Like we should, we still feed every few weeks. If you're yeah. going to name drop, that one's okay. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can you bleep out things? No. Um, so you just go, well, do I need, do I even need to be feeding these, you know, one ton horses? And then when we moved back here, I had sold one of my teams and then the other one I had for a little while. And the gentleman that had bought my original team knew that I was thinking about selling them. And he, he actually took them. I just gave them to him because they were older. And so they went, they went to all people around in an apple orchard. So it was a pretty good retirement. Interesting. So you said that like your, your power requirements are so low that you could do it with, with the four horse team, like, and that you're talking about like some light tillage. What were you using them for? I guess is what I'm asking. Well, pre um, regenerative and understanding getting into that world, you know, with Gabe Brown and those guys, Ray, uh, I actually did a little bit of tillage. You know, I would plow with horses. Had I known what I know now, I wouldn't have even done that, but I did mostly hay with them. I was running 
oh, about 80 acres of hay. Um, I did some loose hay. A lot of times what I would do is I would do the cutting with the horses and the raking, and then I'd hire somebody to come and bale it. Okay. And then they'd round bale it. And then I would, I had a big, a round bale mover that I could put on horses. They called um, a tumble bug. If you've ever seen a tumble bug before, they're meant to go behind pickups and right. they have electric brakes on them. There's a video on YouTube. If you look it up, I'm sure it's got a whole bunch of views of me taking them off of field with a team. I'll try to find that and, uh, and put that link in the show notes. Yeah. It's, it's a little bit different. It was super enjoyable. I mean, it was, but you know, how it goes, you pile all these things and you're shooing horses full time and you're, you know, in the wintertime I would run trucks and, you know, you go, wow, should I, do I even need to be doing all this stuff? And, and now where we're at now, we don't outside of a very, very, very small, I sold all my hay equipment when I moved over to back home and we buy, you know, 95% of our hay. We do a little bit here and there, some stuff we lease that we don't have fence around, but we just share equipment with a friend of ours that has a dairy. So we don't, we don't have to have the baler. Another arm of our business. So, so we actually have a custom harvesting we have a combine and truck and stuff like that. That that's a separate business though from okay. from the Walker Farm. Well, it's under Walker Farms. It's a uh, Rum River Custom Harvesting. So, and that's my brother's gig. I mean, he really heads that up, spearheads that. My brother's a diesel mechanic by trade, and you know he loves running the combines. And I love it when it's going good. When it breaks down, usually I just call him. <laughs> hey, hey, your machinery's broke down. Come on over. Go fix this stuff. I'm going to go hang out with the cows for a while. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with, you know, participating in the current system as it exists or taking advantage of, of conditions to be able to make a living. That being said, you know, we also have to be trying to make progress forward, which you obviously are. Yeah. So no, it's one of those things we kind of stumbled into that, but there, we, we do a lot of, have you ever heard of Iowa Cover Crop by chance? They're a cover crop seed company. I do. So there's the gentleman that owns it, it, my brother went to college with, and he, his grandma lives in Princeton. So on the other side of town from us. Okay. And he's trying to get more ground up here because we, we're in a pretty light soil area and it's really good for the small grains. And so we're, more or less contract with him to harvest all of his small grains for seed. And then he trucks a lot of it down to Iowa. We, it's something we're working on right now. We just picked up some more ground for doing that, but he's also on board with trying to get the grazing animals out there. It's just getting the landlords, you know, this, this current property that we're, that he's on right now, no fence around it. And nobody out there thinks if you're, if they, if you're not living out there, they don't think there should be animals out there you know so it's trying to teach people that hey he what he'd like to do is put the cover crop like a rye or um, spring wheat or something out there take the seed have a cover under it for grazing and then be able to winter graze in these properties that's the ultimate goal with that i that's what the, interesting that the mindset is if there's nobody living there they shouldn't have animals on the property I, that's that's really strange. 
well, especially from where you're at by us, you know, there's trees around there. Our biggest pasture that we have right now is 60 acres of all the acres that we run. So we're moving animals, you know, around two of the properties we own are right next to each other. So we don't have to move them down the road necessarily, okay. but, and that's about 200 acres. That's right there. The bulk of what we do. And that's five miles from where I live. So, and that's where the bulk of our animals are right now for the wintering. And so, you know, we're up there a couple times a day. I usually go and do chores in the morning and then my brother usually swings by at some point just to check on, especially right now when it's this cold, you know, check on water and all that fun stuff. So how cold is it up there? Uh, this morning it was 13 below when I got up. So, and it wasn't windy yesterday. It was really windy, but Ooh, 14 below we we've, I haven't seen that this year, but last year during the big polar vortex, we had a low of 14 below. And then Southern Kansas is not, should not see that weather more than once every 10 years. I could promise you it, uh, the ice was rough. It was, yeah. We don't deal with too much of the ice, except it did get about 38 here, 38, 40 for a day or two. And that snow kind of melted down. And then it got really cold again. So now there's a pretty good crust on everything. So I, I was more thinking of the ice in the water tanks. Oh, yeah. We, we have one tank we have to cut every day. I mean, where the cows are, even though we have a, oh, they call it the freeze miser. You've ever heard of that where they yes. dry? It opens when it gets below at 34 or something. So that thing's running in that one. But you still got to cut the top open. You know. At last year when it was so cold for so long, it got to the point, like, I'd put my cows down on the creek specifically because I knew it was going to be, you know, we saw the weather coming. Like, I'll put them down on the creek. There should be good, you know, nice cool season grass down there left, plenty of range for them to run around. It's like 100 and, uh, 147 acres of creek bottom. Okay. Plenty of places for them to hide. And for some reason, I just, for the first 10 days of that cold, I decided that I just absolutely had to keep keep that tank open for them because I had to take mm -hmm. water and they had the Creek. And I should have realized that the, I should have looked at the tracks and understood that they weren't coming up to the tank. <laughs> you're going out twice a day to try to get, you know, eight, nine inches of ice out of this stupid thing and keep the float clear so it could work. Um, I gave up. <laughs> I just <laughs> gave up. I went down. I, looked go solid. I went down, I looked at the Creek and I'm like, you know, it was like nine degrees that morning. And the sun wasn't out and I went down and looked at the creek and, oh, that's where they're drinking. That's where all the what? That's where all the tracks are. Maybe I'll just give up on this tank project and <laughs> save that half hour of backbreaking labor twice a day. Yeah. Yeah. Ours didn't get too bad because we do it every day. But uh, around this particular tank is a pretty good pile of the pile of ice. So the cows, I put out some bedding out there so they got traction, but they kind of have to walk up almost a ramp to get to it right now. <laughs> But I find that they uh, tend to not come up to it as much. I think they're eating more snow or something because you watch them, they don't come up. And right now we're, you know, we've changed a lot what we've done in the last few years. We're trying to get away from breeding stock. So we're, our herd, we're really just as bare minimum as we need right now. Now we'll start buying feeders in here starting you know, the end of this month for our grass program. We got three different places that we buy from. So that are, they don't want to do the marketing. So we buy the animals and then finish them on grass and market them. So 
but the cow calf, even with what we do, it's because we have to feed typically so many months, the cow calf just doesn't have the profitability compared to buying in these young stock. So, and that's understandable. And I've been, I guess that's been kind of a subject a lot lately that I've been discussing, uh, not on this platform, but you know, with some other, with some other folks is, and we'll probably get into this shortly because you just got back from ranching for profit. Yep. And I'll put the ding in later. You just got back from, <laughs> from the school that shall not be named. And I don't want to talk negatively about it or give anybody a negative impression, but it seems that the tools that, that you get at the school and the way they encourage you to look at your economics and your, and your finances and your business structure it pushes a lot of guys towards the custom grazing on leased land model or custom grazing on, on own land model and starting to push a lot of guys, you know, kind of away from the cow calf, which I can understand, but there's a certain point where the, the economics of that cow calf business are going to flip. And what I mean by that is the, the small frame, forage-based maternal genetics that that we need to get back in our cow herd that we've bred out of and by using high energy feed and feedlots and whatnot. If we can get back to those kinds of cows, I think we can get some profitability back in the cow-calf sector and not take anything away from, from what anybody else is doing. Oh, absolutely. I think and it, you probably, well, you know, when you've been there, the question always, well, what happens if nobody does cows anymore? <laughs> Which of course isn't going to happen, but right. Yeah. And you know, so talking numbers, the average cow size, average cow herd size in the U.S. is like forty-four cows, I think. Yep. And that's fair. Um, that's actually not a whole lot less than what I personally own. I can carry a lot. I can run a lot more than that on the ranch. But we've we've got a lot of, I guess. I hate to use this term because I'm sure a bunch of them listen to this podcast and I don't want to use this term disparagingly, but backyard breeders, guys with three or five, and they're not going to be as concerned with, with how that animal performs in a real world. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Cause they don't have, to, I mean, they're not going to retain their females either probably. So more likely than not. You know, there's always going to be a need for guys that are retaining females and raising heifers, especially in a forage-based system. I guess that's my point. And yeah, the economics of it might not necessarily look the rosiest, but I think it's a long-term investment. I think it's a long-term project. Well, and as long as it's profitable, maybe it's a different percentage of profit, but yeah, you do need them. And, and even, you know, we're still keeping some breeding cows. We made the mistake. We've got a couple that are, you know, you can pet and we get people to come out and tour a lot. So it's wonderful to have a, you know, a cow that you can come up and give her a scratch. We have one, we call her red cow. She's just a good cow. She's open, but she's going to get another chance. And yeah, by the by the rules, she should go away. But from that standpoint, she's worth keeping around. 
And if we, our deal is we're, we're on a lot of real degraded ground that was row crop for years and years and years. And we've been asked to come in and, and put the fences in. When we get to a point, which I think we can, where we're able to have enough stockpiled forage where we're only feeding hay, let's say 60 days, I can run the economics and make it work, especially if we want to start getting, you know, the genetics in our area away from this feedlot type so that they do perform on our forage. Somebody's going to have to do that. So if we can get it to that point, then I can see it being um, economic, um, profitable, I guess, to do cow-calf. And we would go there. We love cow-calf. We're like everybody else. I love calving. We're, we're actually working right now on bringing sheep back in as a breeding, uh, doing uh, a breeding flock because the numbers are different on that. Right now, we buy a lot of feeder lambs. Well, boy, that it gets pretty tight buying feeder lambs right now and even in selling them into the markets that we sell them to. So we're going to do a breeding flock on the sheep side of things and more of a stocker situation on the cattle side of things until we can get that stockpile and we get this a lot of our soils are really degraded, you know, and we're pretty sandy where we're all the stuff that we run is pretty sandy. So once you get to that point, I can see doing uh, cow calf again, for sure. So. How, how are sheep in your environment as a soil rehabilitation tool versus cattle? Uh, well, because they eat the different forages, they can be, handy that way impact wise it's obviously less it's, you know they're a little bit harder to manage i think that's why a lot of people stay away from it but we've been able to train ours to single line eventually you know we get you them even that? <laughs> what's that how'd you do that well we start them in a netting you know and then you put a line inside that's hot and you well two lines actually we do a two line and we pull the netting away eventually and then they're on a on two poly lines, and then you kind of keep an eye on them. After a while, we're able to move it a move off that one and just do it a single line. And we didn't trust that. <clears throat> and my wife and I were out moving sheep one day, and I thought, well, I'll just take two O'Brien posts and put that wire down on the ground, and they'll just run right over it into the next paddock. No, no, no way. No, they hit that line, even though the it wasn't even visible and they all just piled into a stop like a freight train just doop. and we kept trying and I thought, well this isn't going to work so we had to reel the lineup then we realized that one line will keep them in and we haven't had an issue since so it's it's worked out pretty good that way <laughs> go ahead sorry that's really interesting that you know you put the fence down on the ground and the sheep still wouldn't cross it because i'm sure there's a lot of sheep guys that had just listen to that, that are going, no way, no way. Mine would go through there like water through a pipe. Yeah, no, we didn't. It, we can move them with a the line. We just, we just haven't had an issue with it. I, I would assume if they were pushed really hard by a predator, maybe they would. But I mean, we were pushing them on foot and they wouldn't, wouldn't go over that line, even though it was on the ground. So I, I mean, I can, I can see how it works. It's just kind of a long-term psychology issue. Like they'll recognize, they'll recognize, they recognize the net fence as a barrier. 
and they know it's a barrier. They know when they go touch it, they're going to get shocked. And then when you step inside of that with your single or your double poly, you know, I, I assume a, a foot or two. Yeah, it's about 11 inches, 12 inches off the ground. Yeah. yeah so I, I forget what hook it is on the O'Brien post. It's like the fourth one up or something like that. <laughs> That's so, my measure. It. As you know, and I'm sure that they test it as as part of the learning process. They'll go under your single poly, get shocked by it, and then get into the net and get another shock. And like like anything else, they'll learn that. With cows, I think it's a much quicker training process, or we've just bred in, you know, we've bred, we've been running electric fence around cows long enough that they all kind of genetically now understand what what a hot wire is. Do you, do you see any of that with the sheep? Um, we don't, because they're feeders, we don't keep them long enough, but that'll be, so with the cattle, another reason to keep back some older cows or some cows that are used to the whole program, because now when you're bringing feeders in through the summer, because you know, you might bring a, bring a group of 20 in. Well, I've found that if you've got those animals in there that know that fence, yeah, we hardly have them. So how's it going, Okay, yeah, sorry you. I'm late. I totally just didn't get my times right. So that's on me. I apologize. Is that the mountain time thing? Or? Yes, it's mountain time. I was like, I thought I was at one. He's like, yes, central. It's like, okay, I'm coming right now. We were outside <laughs> chopping wood. So <laughs> I'm glad. Well, you're doing something useful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you see where Joel is chopping wood from your office? Uh, no, because he, he's on back 40. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. <laughs> I had to run. Right across the field, so you guys are welcome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so That's the one thing I did. I go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. As I say, I did. I retired from shoeing horses about two years ago now, almost two Januarys ago, and that's a whole other story. But uh, I did find that after I did that, I got to be careful what I eat because when I was shoeing horses full time, I could eat whatever I wanted whenever I wanted. Oh you're yeah. Printing, like 5,000 calories a day. Yeah. And now it's kind of, well, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't have that extra ice cream today. <laughs> Being a farrier is hard work. And, Absolutely. and I don't want anybody to be confused or think that like, anybody can hang iron on a hoof. That's not, yeah. that's not that skill, but being able to heat up iron, shape a hoof, to correct a problem on the horse's foot, that's when you need to call a farrier and the the two skills are dramatically different mm-hmm. yeah i was joked because you know i did a lot of horses in that you know 4-h or for the eventers and jumpers and all this so you'd have a dad and he's got a daughter and you know wants a horse well they end up with two horses because you got to have their companion you know or uh, herd animals you got to yeah, have, they gotta have two. a friend got to have a body so they've been convinced to buy two horses. They got the trailer and the truck or the SUV or whatever to pull it. And the vet was out there. And I did a lot of work with vets, a lot of founder work and stuff like that. So I, the vets would go out and do all their stuff. And then they said, well, you're going to need the farrier out here. And so by the time I get out there, they give me a call. If they've spent all this money on these two horses and I show up and I trim these two horses in just like right now, you know, boom, I'm in there and out of there in a half an hour. And the guy, I give him a bill and dad faints because he's already <laughs> dropped how much on all these horses. And I, he go, wow, that didn't look real hard. So I taught, I give him some tools and I show him how to trim horses. Never once did I lose a customer that way. Oh yeah. Never once. They never realized that, you know, I do this every day, six days a week. It's a skill set. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Mm. You know, and I still do my wife's course and we're looking at getting another one and some neighbors here, but being that I don't do it every day, I, it, it, I feel it now. (laughs) You know, we were, it is, it is extremely physically demanding. You don't see very many old farriers that, that don't complain about how bad their back and knees hurt all the time. And, and that's kind of well I got out of it. I, I was, I was at the heights, you know, I was doing well. It's a very good way to make a living. It's, it's honest. It's uh, lucrative. It's, I like the art of it. But when I moved and I was going to have to change my clientele, I was still driving back every few weeks and getting under 30 some head a weekend if I could to try to keep my clientele. And finally I said, you know what? I'm going to just start building my business over here. Well, my wife goes, do you want to do that? You know, I was turning 40, which isn't that old, but when you're shoeing horses, do I want to build a whole new book of business? Do this till I'm 60 plus years old. It's not always the years, it's the miles. It's the, yeah, you, it was, I would, I found myself getting tapped, kicked, uh, I wasn't moving as fast as I used to when I was in my thirties and my twenties. And I thought, you know what, one of these days I'm not going to move fast enough and it's not going to be my elbow or my shoulder or my hip. It's going to be my head. Mm-hmm. Well, on this grass, uh, you know, direct marketing meat thing is going pretty good. Maybe I should think about <laughs> not chewing horses. <laughs> I would also say that like having the skill, having having the skills to be able to horseshoe and, and barrier when you have two teams, that's probably pretty, and that's probably a pretty important cost saving uh, skill to have. Oh, absolutely. And the teams, you know, they'd pick their feet up, put them on a stand, you know, and they were always really good about, but it was work. I mean, it was, you know, that's big feet. You figure, you figure the size of a saddle horse, even a nice ranch horse, Mm -hmm. Compared to a Belgian. <laughs> it's like a beer can to you know, a coffee can. Yeah, like a dinner plate. Yeah, it's it's a different deal. But no, it's one of those things. I'm glad I did it for all the years. I did it for about 26 years. So it was it was a good good run. So <laughs> hey, you ready to talk about your trip to uh Minot? Oh, absolutely. So talk about the school that may not be named. Yeah. Now you're gonna say, Dallas, why do we go to Minot in February? <laughs> I thought the answer was is because John got to go to Phoenix in January. But that I did hear that much yeah. with it. I know that's why John got stuck having to go to Minot. We're talking about uh John Locke, by the way. Yeah, hate yeah. the cold. <laughs> yeah. Houston boy in uh Minot in February. He probably didn't leave the hotel either, did he? Oh, no, not until the last night we, we all left. But it was funny to walk out the last day. And I was looking at other people. Have you, have you left the, the hotel? We've got there on Sunday at, what, 1230? I did not go outside the walls of that building until that Friday at about 7. I have never been inside a building my entire life for that long. <laughs> and, <laughs> you never had to leave. And it, It's just so intense that you don't. You don't even really realize it. You don't think about it. Mm-hmm. No, it goes fast. It went really fast. But I, John was just an excellent instructor. I mean, I had 
learned a lot. It was fun because we could razz him about his floppy eared cattle. That was a good time. So he takes it well. He does. Yeah, for the most part. <laughs> so without so. sounding like a sales pitch, tell us tell us about your experience at ranching for profit over the days and and what are some of the tools that you've learned and how are you applying them? For me going, so I, I'm a, a podcast nerd, a junkie, whatever you want to call it. You know, um, I listen to a lot of stuff. I obviously listen to your podcast and the others out there and a lot of business stuff. I read, I've read everything of Dave Pratt that I absolutely can, you know, so I went in with a pretty high expectation. Like I am going to get my breakthrough. What's my, I'm going in with my breakthrough. And for me, it was a lot of what we've learned and gone and just dug a little deeper into that part of it. For me, it's the finance part of it. How do we take all these entities that, that we're running because they want them to split them down instead of just having the meat side of things, we, you know, we need to get it down to the beef, the pork, the lamb, the chicken, the turkeys, the marketing side, actually Walker Farms is, you know, one of the things that has come away from that is that's probably going to become a brand that we sell to, which was like kind of an eye opener. It's, it's that structuring, I guess for me walking away with that type of structure um, was very helpful, very helpful. And I think the reason that being able to pull back a little bit and and see how something should be structured lets you start putting those costs where they should be. Like you were just talking about, you know, having selling to the beef business and having things broke out, you know, beef, chicken, pork, lamb, and and the birds. You don't know where your money's going unless you have those things broken out. Like you yeah. might just have a feed bill. Okay, great. You know how much you spend on feed. If you just have cows you know how much you spend on feed for cows, but if all that's lumped in, you, know, you got to have those things separate. I'm not saying you didn't, but I'm just, just making the point. No, it's, that's absolutely it. And it did bring in, you know, we've with our egg laying, for instance, we'll use that one high labor. Eggs are high labor. They can be very highly profitable. I know seven sons there. They said that's one of the most profitable things they do uh, for us. It wasn't. And we actually have a friend uh, he was doing raw milk. He's retired from that older gentleman has a nice flock of pasture birds. I mean, I, he must have thousand birds. Well, he was kind of backing off and wanted to sell us eggs. Well, he raises eggs on the same protocol as we use pasture, non-GMO, the whole nine yards. Um, so we've actually switched over to buying our eggs in flats from him we still run them through our cleaner, you know, our washer and all that stuff, but we just get them by the flat rather than having that labor here. So the only thing I'm a little nervous with it, because we just started doing that now for the last few months is I do like what the birds do on the pasture. Yeah. I'm the cows. It's, it's amazing. So we're going to see how that works. We still might have to run some mainly just for that cleanup, you know, do you guys have neighbors or anything? Like, are you guys out in the boondocks? Uh, no, we have neighbors. No, we're pretty. If you look on Google Earth, I mean, we got trees around everything, and we're. Like, Wonder so, if you could lease that business to someone. Wonder if that's. Yep, we'd like to find a very ambitious young person. We've got, 
yeah. on our, we do our own butchering for poultry mm-hmm. and it's hard to find labor. We have a really good crew and I, I got a pretty good story on that from last night, but uh, it, most of them have a career somewhere else, but they come, we butcher usually every other week in the summertime to three weeks, depending, we do a little over 2000 birds a year in our own facility. Plus we send some up to a, an inspected facility with our facility, we have to sell to the end user. So our customers, we can't take them to like a food co-op or a restaurant, I, Yeah, just our poultry. So we do do some that can go that route, but we have a young, young man that's come and help us. It's the son, our, one of our friends that comes, but he, he's getting his driver's license. And I found out that this is a big motivator for young men, at least, and probably young women as well. But they get that driver's license and they need fuel money and date money. <laughs> so they come and work and work hard. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> yeah, so, I, was, I was actually kind of shocked. Um, our daughter's in her second semester at college and I taught her to drive on the back roads. I mean, she's had a driver's license for three years. She got a we got our farm permit, I think when she was, I think we got it when she was 14 and I taught her to drive and the number, like the percentage of kids in her generation that she's in college with that do not have a driver's license mm-hmm. is oh, seriously. Yeah. Yeah. It's high. That surprises me that they don't even have that. And it's mostly, it's mostly the kids, the I shouldn't say kids. It's mostly the young adults that are coming from, you know, big areas, Kansas City, Hmm. Kansas City, Chicago, you know, New York City, East Coast, where there's, you know, some public transportation or they live in a city where, you know, there's, there's Ubers around or their parents have always taken a ride or they can just Uber somewhere. Yeah. No, I don't. Yeah. I had friends that didn't get even here that didn't get their driver's license until they were 18. I mean, that, what we, what we were driving when we could reach the pedals and barely then, and uh, you can get, we can get a farmer's permit at 15. So I had a driver's license at 15, you know, I had my CDL at 18, you know, and all that kind of fun stuff. But yeah, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. There's less and less of kids being excited to go out and do that. That's so interesting because I feel like I would be like, no, I don't want to be restricted. Like if I need a draft, <laughs> I want to be able to have that ability. <laughs> yeah. I think I was like 10 when my dad taught me how to drive. And yeah, you know, all right. on a ranch, that's a very practical skill to have. Hey, <laughs> get in this pickup and pull the trailer to the other side of the pasture. Yeah. Hey, dad, I can do that. You know, it's, it can be a big, it can be a huge time and labor saver just to have somebody around to move a vehicle. Oh, yeah. yeah. So interesting. That makes me think like, is, is this generation going to, they're just depending on society for everything then. Like, that's just another thing that they're not, they're relying on others to provide a service for them. That's kind of crazy. Yeah. Who knows? But well, going back to the ranching for that profit thing that, the butchering side of things too. That's another one. Um, you know, we're, we're going to sit down and really look at that one. Is that one that we want to keep doing? Does it make sense? You're talking about doing your own birds. Doing the butchering. And that comes down to labor and then just, you know, 
facilities. We have a nice, you know, we have a the automatic scalder, plucker. We have really nice facility. Mm-hmm. But it's Joel Salatin style. I mean, it's open air um, type of deal. So you you wonder, is there, there's some folks around here. There's one guy that does a mobile and it, it's actually mobile processing from poultry and it's inspected. And we're, we're strongly looking at thinking, well, that, does it make sense to keep doing this or should our time be, you, you question, that's what I find myself now. I'm going around, I'm questioning everything I'm doing is, uh, um, is this the way to the work? They don't give you any answers. They just make you come home and ask all more questions. Yeah. Would I do this for $15 an hour? <laughs> hmm. So all those kinds of things and bringing it back. My brother has not gone yet. Um, he'll, he's going to go at some point, but it's bringing it home and then trying to teach it to the rest of our team, you know, cause we got my, my folks um, who, after they sold out of the farm bagging about two, they te- were teaching well, they want to retire from that and come back to the farm. And so they're an integral part of what we do. So we got to get them on board. And you know, here, here, you know, Annalise and I come back with all these ideas, you know, this big flip chart thing, and we're gonna do all this stuff. And we have to get our our ducks in a row before we uh, bring this to the rest of the team. My mom's reading um Dave Pratt's book, The Healthy Families or the Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, which one I'm talking about. It escapes me but to kind of help get on board with some of the the thought processes and where we're trying to go. We're we're not trying to say that we don't need to do stuff or we're trying to get rid of something. We said we just need to look at it really hard. You know, how do we make it work? Because we know with one of our issues and I would if we want to go into the the direct to consumer thing. Yes. Direct to consumer sounds, you know, I've been doing it. So I read, oh, it's 20 years ago now. I read Omnivore's Dilemma, was introduced to Joel Salton. I mean, I, hook, line, and sinker. I just boom, went right into that. I went right to direct to consumer, did a, had a good business doing the, went the CSA model, uh, which, and, and on the rail, hanging weight sales. The thing is, is people need to realize that that is a very high labor intense. Here's the reality. On our farm, I don't do a ton of that part of it. My wife does. And she, she does our marketing. She does our inventory. She does a lot of the packing. We, we deliver door to door every Thursday. We do different routes you know, in the Twin Cities once a month, we have a, one route we do twice a month and then another, we go another direction once a month. And she gets that all set up. Well, when it's harvest season and my brother and I are gone, you know, we do, we custom harvests between small grains and coarse grains about 2000 acres a year. That takes, well, that takes us a couple of days. Yeah. <laughs> this year was a little better because the weather was nice, but you know, we're gone. If you got good weather, we're, well, then it's, then she's a one woman band, you know, it's a, it's something that I think you got to think about if you're going to do that, the labor, it's not just magic, you know, you make all this profit, you know, I hear, I hear people, we go and talk and um, have tours and people think, oh, yep, you know, it's really easy. You just, you know, get a website and all this the way she spends hours a week 
hours and hours making sure that the social media is up to date. And I'm, I'm not a big tech guy. I'll go. If she says, I need you to go videotape X, Y, or Z, you know, go, go look at calves or go look at piglets and talk about it. Okay. I'll take my phone out and do the, you know, introduce myself kind of deal, but I don't do the editing, any of that. It's, it's a big chore. Editing is work. Don't let anybody lie to you and say that's not editing is work. Yeah. We were talking about it this morning at breakfast. I said, I don't know how some of these folks, you watch the YouTube, you know, um, guys and think now that I know what's involved with that, you think, well, they put that 10 minute video up on there. Well, they got hours into that (laughs) to make it look nice, you know? So I have a lot I think More there's respect. some guys that do spend hours and hours on yeah. a 15 minute video. And I think there's some people that it just kind of comes natural to, and they can bust out, you know, a 20 minute video in an hour. That's yeah. nice and professional. I'm not that guy. <laughs> yeah. That wouldn't be me either. No. So, but the direct to consumer, I know because you're talking about a lot, you know, uh, shake the hand that feeds you. I think that's that's great. You know, our big thing for our farm is get to know your farmer or know your farmer. We say that that's kind of our sign off deal. Know your farmer, um, and it's that's a good deal. And I I think we would need a lot more of it. You know, I'm on board with Mike. You know, Mike Calcrate on that kind of deal, um, but it's not. The question is, how do you scale that? And our our big thing going to the um, RFP is turnover on that side of our business is difficult because you've got, we use two different processors okay. and add, with the, the, all the fun stuff that's been going on for the last two years. Yes. It's been great for our business because more and more people want, especially because we were doing door to door delivery. They want that, especially when everything closed down, we were already doing it. Right. But now you still got to get the butcher slots and then you've got, it's a whole nother management. It's not like you go, well, I've got, you know, a hundred calves ready to go. I'm just going to run down to the sales barn and unload my trucks and they'll send me a check. No, you have to have, you know, we lock in our animals before we were locking them in almost a year in advance. Now they've switched it. So we're on a six month. So my brother on the first of every month is booking our animals for six months down the road to make sure. And then we have to decide, well, how many do we want? You know, okay. If it's going to be, October, November, that's, you know, a lot of, a lot of our hanging weight stuff goes in at that time. So it's, you know, 20 animals or whatever it is. And then we do once a month processing at our main butcher. And so we'll bring in so many hogs and so many beef every month, but how many do you need, you know, and then what quality? Cause sometimes when I shouldn't say quality, but what age, so, you know, with the whole 30 month deal, are we doing hamburger animals and we want boneless cuts? So we might take a three-year-old cow or something. And I, I'll be the first to tell you, if I'm going to have a ribeye. I want an older animal. I personally, I think they taste way better, but if you're going to do a hang animal to sell to a customer as a half a beef, well, we got to have a prime steer or a heifer, you know, because they're wanting T-bones and, you know, bone and rib and bone and cuts. So you have to think, okay, it's just a lot of management that it's, I don't know if that gets talked about enough because I, 
the extra work, it's not just magic. You get, you know, $9 a pound for your beef or something like that, you know? <laughs> right. So why do you like a ribeye from an old cow better than you like one from, from a, let's just say finished animal. I've found that no, we're talking flavor. like an old grass cow, right? Grass. Yep. Grass cow. Like age, right. That's what you mean. Yeah, probably. Well, we had three-year-old cow that went in that we took a half for just our personal use and the ribeyes, you know, we had to be careful because we almost ate those things all the way up. You know, we were having ribeye every week because they're so good. I mean, they just, and that's a flavor that I appreciate. Some people, we eat a lot of wild game too. My wife grew up in Virginia, Minnesota, which is up on the iron range and her family's big into hunting. So they were, you know, bear and venison and a lot of wild game she loves that wild game and so we like that and lamb you know we love lamb leg of lamb i mean i'd eat that every day but it's kind of pricey even if you buy it from yourself so (laughs) so i appreciate that flavor that depth of flavor of the aged animal that's and that's a person the only ones who don't really eat beef that or protein that way with the depth of flavor like you're talking about, like that's very much common with South American and how Europeans eat their meat. So that's just something that we we lost in our culture. Yeah. Well, my parents, they did a, a deal over in Qatar for two years. They were teaching. And yeah, my dad said, you could go into the store over there and you could get lamb from anywhere in the world. You know, they had U.S. lamb, Australian lamb, uh, Egyptian lamb, you know, New Zealand lamb, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> but he said the, di- the difference in the flavors were, was noticeable. And another thing my dad always says, though, is with what we do, he says, you don't realize, people don't realize what good food is because yes. they don't have it. But once they've had it, you know, but yeah, it's a personal preference. I think going back to the, the aged cow, I mean, I, I much prefer that. So I was, uh, I was on another social media platform yesterday and uh, with a couple other guys that are, that are fairly like-minded and we got to some, one of the bands asked the question about NHTC cattle, non-hormone treated. And so we kind of started talking about that. And, uh, one of the guys was unfamiliar with you know, why cattle get implanted. And without naming any names, I went to a, a ranch that I visited last year. I had a bunch of stalker steers on it. Like, let's just call them 500 stalker steers. And they were owned, I think, by a feedlot, you know, that the bottom is, bottom is calves, sent them to a background, or then they would send them to grass for a few months, and then they're going to the feedlot to, to do what they do all these cattle had been implanted with, with some growth hormone. I don't know which one it was specifically. And some of the conversation that, you know, for the couple of days that I was there, we were talking about implants and what they do. And basically what it is, is it's a time release capsule that they put into the animal that releases estrogen. Now, I'm not a real smart guy, but when you put female sex hormones into a male animal, it messes with them. Mm-hmm. 
it, it, it messes with their emotional response and how they act. And in this particular case, the female hormones in, in about 1% of the animals was so strong that each one of those had 10 to 15 other steers chasing them around trying to ride them. Mm. Yeah, there might have been some in there that gained on top of four or five pounds a day, just absolutely did ridiculous because of the implants. But then you've got that 10% of the animals that's chasing around a few trying to ride them all the time. That can't be good. Now, and then we got into talking about the difference in between hormones. So testosterone has a tendency to build more chiseled, more chiseled stacked muscle, right? Estrogen builds softer, softer, curvier muscle. I mean, I think mm-hmm. we can agree with that without offending anybody. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I just wanted to bring that. I just wanted to get that out there in the light in the world that, you know, maybe this is something we really need to look at is, is how we're messing up these cattle with all these hormones. I mean, I don't support it at all. I mean, that's pretty obvious from listening to me or listening to any, any of this podcast that I don't think that's natural. Well, and the question again, then it goes back to the whether it's, you know, it's no, it's not natural, then what does it actually cost to do there? Is there actually a gain? Um, it's, what do they say all the time? It's not just the cost of the inputs, it's the cost of the inputting. Somebody's got to do that. So what does that all pencil out to be? And then just like you said, with these hormones, okay, we could argue that one all day long, but I also know a lot of people now that I was unfamiliar with, they spay the heifers. It's not very common here where I'm at, you know, you hardly ever hear about that, but I'm finding out West that a lot of people spay, you know, feeder heifers to keep them from riding. And I have a friend who did it and he said, yeah, Mm -hmm. it it was like eight bucks a head. And when he said that, he's, he's doing what 700 and some head at the time. I, I just about fell over when I thought about labor and everything, but he, in the end said it was worth it. So, okay. So now you put a implant in them so that you have that issue or are we taking the, the estrogen away? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's kind of... There's, there's totally different. There can be programs that polar opposites of the, of the common sense spectrum. And you could put those two guys in a room and they'll both agree what the other one is doing is right. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I don't know what we'll to see. Cause we have an opportunity. We got, I mean, talk about, we could rabbit hole. We have a, uh, Right next to us, we have the Sherburne National Wildlife Refuge. It's about 36,000 acres of National Wildlife Refuge. Okay. And a, f- a friend of mine um, was managing cattle out there. It was on a uh, custom grazing contract. He didn't own them. And that had its pros and its cons. Um, but we're looking this year, he wants to put a more owned herd together. So we're looking at buying animals to put into that to graze out there you know, in an all natural, trying to figure out how, what class animal we want to put out there um, and see what we can do on that, nat- what we would consider native around here. I mean, as native as you're going to find. Uh, but yeah, trying to figure that animal out. Would that just be cows or would that be some kind of a multi-species situation? Well, I think eventually they want to do it where they had sheep and cattle, right? <laughs> I think the management of the sheep on the refuge would be, you'd have to have guardian dogs and cause it's, it's definitely, 
got a lot of coyotes. We don't have wolves around here so much. People say we do, maybe we do, maybe we don't. We have a lot of coyotes though. Yeah. And we've had that issue with our, our birds before, especially our laying flocks. So that would be the issue with sheep. With the cattle, last year they had cow-calf out there. And the problem with that was when they would move them, the calves, you know, would have bed down somewhere well, in the middle of the night or whatever, all the calves or the cows want to get back together. And how we got involved with it is this friend of mine called, hey, uh, the sheriff's out there, they got a calf on the wrong side of the road. Could you run over there and help, you know, do this? So this year we want to not have cow-calf. We want to have stockers or maybe cows we're looking at potentially just buying, you know, under conditioned cows, put some condition on them. There it goes back. So at the beginning of the, uh, December, I went down to uh, Doug Ferguson's sell by class. Okay. So it's like trying to figure out how do you use that knowledge to, to buy the appropriate class of cattle to put out there. So Rook, I didn't know you'd been to, to that sell by school. Have you been to uncle Wally's sell by school yet? Have you heard? Of no, it? I haven't. I went to Doug's cause it was just worked better in my schedule. I actually went down there with Jared Lumen who does the herd quitter, um, herd quitter podcast. He doesn't, he lives about three hours from me in Southern Minnesota. So spoiler alert, Jared and I have one on the schedule to do together. That's awesome. So Jared is a just, he's just a good guy. Actually, he was supposed to go to the RFP in Minot with us and he got sick, but his dad came. Oh, really? John, John Lumen. Yeah. You know, and they raise, obviously they raise bulls for Pharaoh and just a lot of knowledge. You know, he's been around the world looking at different grazing and stuff. And I did John is raised bulls for Pharaoh. Uh Oh <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, they raise, if we, if we were to get back into breeding stock and looked at, if we were looking for grass genetics, I would strongly look at bulls that came from his farm, just because they're in our environment already. And they had, that herd's been up here for a long time. So. And that's the important note, a herd that's been in the area for a while and has proven genetics to perform in that area. And then there's also an asterisk, like bull salesmen are salesmen. Not saying any more about that. If you're if you're gonna buy a bull from a guy that won't let you go tour his pastures or won't let you kind of come drop in unannounced and see how he's taking care of those bulls, do you really want that? Do you really trust what he's what he's trying to sell you? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Like, and by no means is that a call out on anybody. That's just a general observation about about the cattle business. Yeah. No, you got to know where those the, the genetics, especially when you're gonna try doing this grass finishing. Um, you know, a lot of the stuff we're getting in isn't necessarily grass genetics, but we're able to make that work because in our area, when we have grass, we have good grass because it's a short period of time. You know, it's pretty high octane stuff. Um, we have moderate rain where we're at. We're pretty technically, I think we're at 32 inches or whatever. And last year was definitely not that, but I used to actually started out with black Galloways when I was in Wisconsin. Okay. The problem with the black Galloway, beautiful animals, they winter really well. They gain in the winter, but you are pushing 24 months to try to finish one of those. And that's pushing it. 
you know, you got to have them on some pretty good stuff, you know, good pasture to do that. So a friend of mine that over in Wisconsin, he's retired now, but he started bringing in some Angus bulls and more old fashioned kind of Angus bulls and then crossing them on to those black Galloways and those F1s, those were, those were some nice cattle for our area because they had the coat to hold you through the winter. But to have that little bit of Angus in there, we could, we could finish them in about 18 to 20 months and have a quality finish. I mean, a true finish. I think a lot of people don't understand that too. When you do a cut, I mean, if you look on your plate, you can tell if that animal was, if you're looking at a steak, finished or not. And we tend to under finish animals in the grass fed world, I think. So. Why is that? Well, part of it is processing time. I mean, I know we've shipped some animals this year that I was nervous that they weren't quite there, but you have that processing date. When you have the six months, right? You have to, that's your end goal, right? Yeah. 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 So you're, you're looking at all that and you go, well, I've got my slots. I need to fill them. And you don't have to back out too many times on a butcher and they're going to go, well, maybe this isn't worth my time. Because they take your slot reservation. Yeah. It's these guys are still really busy around here. So you're, but we're trying to make sure they're finished. You know, we're looking at tailhead. We're looking at you know, the fill on the animals just to, you know, make sure that they're finished the best we can. And mm-hmm. more often than not, they are. But every once in a while, you, you send one down, you go, well, it'll be close. And our customer, we've never had complaints about it. Um, and maybe it's because I would be more picky. <laughs> you know, I don't know. You have a high quality standard, you mean? <laughs> we, we do when it comes to that. I mean, because you, you there again with the direct-to-consumer. You want them to come back, right? Well, you want them to come back. You want to say good things. And with social media nowadays, it doesn't take, it takes one bad apple. And, and most people, it's not. With the beef and lamb and stuff, we don't usually have issues. Chicken, you know, every once in a while you get a chicken that has a, a wing that's bad. Now we cut up. 90 plus percent of what goes through our facility here because of the boneless, skinless breasts, stuff like that. But we have a lot of holes that go out. Well, if you didn't cut that bird up, yeah, you don't know that that wing maybe has a blemish. Well, they don't find that out until they get it home, you know. So you have to be ready and okay with people calling and saying, Hey, this bird has some goofy thing. And it's just no questions asked. We will replace it right now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's the part of it that people don't, that, you know, maybe the grocery store or the restaurant is doing for you when you're doing the direct to consumer, you've got to be prepared yeah. to take on that. And, you know, there again, my wife takes care of that. And one thing on our farm is everybody has a off farm job as well. I mean, our, yeah. We've got three families to support and the, the farm's not supporting three families. So um, my wife actually is your counterpart for Maya. So no, I think we're friends. We, we, <laughs> Oh, I'm sure, yeah. there's, there's, we're friends. So we're, there's uh you know, I actually have a lot of respect for Maya because there's not a lot of us are doing what we're doing. And so if we can give you guys competition to choose, then we're not a monopoly. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. From yeah. that end. And I, I think we just kind of joke about it, but she's, I don't know about your situation. But she is pretty much it. 
you know, she's the oh, only yeah. one. I saw her in Myrtle Beach and her and I both were running around like with chicken chickens who got their head cut off because we were just, you know, everywhere and talking with everyone. So we, we briefly bu- bumped into each other. So hi, Annalise. <laughs> yeah. <you're> <laughs> I kept texting her. I said, ah, did you talk to CK? Well, briefly, you know, off blue eye. You know, yeah. Yeah. So. so she's dealing with that as well as doing the farm stuff. I mean, it's a lot of work. If she's doing anything close to what I'm doing, it's a lot of work and there's there's not a deficit of things that need to be done. And I I'm not doing any farm stuff, so I cannot imagine having to to actually balance those two or three loads actually is what it sounds like. So a lot of props to you you guys for um keeping sane. Um I guess my question is how do you guys not burn out if you're doing all this work? That's, I think, another big question that, that came up, you know, our sheet, at RFP, yeah. you know, burnout, are you getting away? Um, we're really lucky. So I do the day-to-day chores most of the time. My brother lives about eight miles away from the farm. I live here. I live across the road from our shop, my parents, and then our main, where our animals are about five miles away. So I just logistically, it works great. I like doing, you know, the working in the business thing is kind of <laughs> my thing. I, I load the three dogs in the truck and we go up and do chores. And But the, where we're really blessed is for Annalise and I, uh, when we went to the school, you know, I text my brother, call me, talk to my brother. Hey, we're going to be gone. Hey, no problem. I got it. It's covered. You know, we really, we're really lucky. We don't have to worry. We can get away that way. The only time we get into trouble is if we want to go to a family reunion or a wedding. <laughs> when all of us want to be gone at the same time <laughs> so but and then you got to work around your delivery so next weekend we're hoping to go up to we have a lake place up in battle lake minnesota that my my grandpa's built back in the 60s um my parents own it now but to get away we're going to go up and meet with some friends of ours in, in the regen world you know and just hash out one of them has been to rfp and he actually changed they changed their whole operation in 20 days after they went. It was pretty amazing. Wow. You, uh, not uncommon. No, he'd be one to get on here. Cody Kaloji, he's up in North Dakota. Super nice guy. Super nice. And I met him a couple of years ago through some friends and we've gone out there now and visited them a couple of times and they've come up. Yeah, they sold all their cows went to the, the heifers. So I, I'm kind of interested to hear about your experiences with the CSA model that you had down in Wisconsin and why you've chosen to not go back down that route. Part of the reason for not going back is my brother kind of had a, this setup up here, what he was already doing kind of as a small customer base. Um, I actually like the CSA model. I think it's a really good model for people getting started. Reason being is that you get paid up front in the model I had. I I made people pay for a six six month subscription. So every six months they had to up. And they had a big, I had a two two options. It was either big or small, you know, at the time, you know, different poundages. I still think that it's a very valid model because you take some of the thinking away from it. I think we 
we suffer now in our, our current business is we have so many options that I, our, some of our customers, I think, get nervous. You know, how do I pick, you know, all these different cuts and with a CSA, I just decided, you know, this is what the pack was going to be, you know, and you'd get, I always made sure that they had to ground, you know, they always had ground beef and probably some ground pork and they always had a whole chicken every month. That was always there. That was always consistent. And then I would put in different um, prime cuts, you know, lamb chops, if they wanted lamb. That was the one thing that I didn't do for sure. If they didn't like lamb, I just didn't do it. But otherwise, you know, steaks, pork chops, uh, roasts, stuff like that. But the beauty of that is you could put in, okay, we have these um, beef ribs that for some reason nobody wants. Well, this month's CSA is going to have beef rib in it. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like the vegetable folks. Well, if you don't like kale, well, you better figure out what to do with kale because in the spring, that's all you're getting. <laughs> you signed up for yeah. this box you're getting kale figure it out yep. Garnish your pizza with it <laughs> yeah so it, it takes out that that piece of you know maybe having odd cuts around here and there um because we do struggle with that every once in a while but there again Annalise I mean I can't I can't I cannot lift her up enough because of what she does with her marketing she will figure it out you know, how do we push these things? But then it goes to the other side. So we get chicken backs. What are you going to do with chicken backs? We actually compost a lot of our chicken backs. They go back on the pastures from which they came. What, what's well, we a chicken keep back? Some. I've never heard that term. Okay. So, uh, so we part out, I was telling CK, we, uh, we part out most of the chickens that go through our processing facility get parted out into boneless, skinless breasts, drummies, uh, thighs, um, Boneless thighs, if people really don't like us, that's really a pain <laughs> in the butt. But um, so then at the end, you have this carcass. Well, we personally would turn that into soup, you know, and we, we're, we're looking at doing more broth and stuff because we have an on-farm store that we're starting to really build up. Okay. And so we'll save back these backs in, uh, I forget how many we put in a pack. I said four, I think, in a pack. And people will buy them to make chicken stock. Well, you save a bunch of these and then you end up with 150 bags of chicken bags that nobody wants taking up very valuable freezer space. Right. So then you don't do as many. Well, Lisa was just talking this morning about we're pretty much out of them now because it's become a trend and we were, she was able to advertise enough and people are like, oh yeah, I should make, I should make my own chicken stock. So all of a sudden you're out of them. Same goes for tongue, beef tongue. Now you'll open the freezer, you know, it's like a gory movie. <laughs> and then two months later, people are begging for it. Where did it, you know, why is it here? I don't understand. Beef or liver is another one. It goes in waves. Sometimes we've got boxes. Or just like totally random. Is it seasonal or random? That's a good question probably seasonal and i think it has to do with how you advertise or what's going on in the media if they're saying well you know chicken broth or or beef yeah. liver is is the magic food of the of the of the month i love tongue awesome. tacos like oh tongue tacos, so, good. Know, so tender mm -hmm. so brian have you had tongue tacos no <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i i um uh... 
without getting into it, I'm I'm kind of a picky eater, I suppose. Uh, organ meats, liver, I think grass-fed beef liver. Um, I think when word gets out about how much of a superfood grass-fed beef liver is, I don't yeah. think we'll be able to raise grass-fed cattle fast enough. Yeah. And we're starting to find that out. That paper they just published, right? About regenerative food and how it has so many more nutrients and it's actually cited. It's peer-reviewed, it's scientific knowledge. Yeah. Now. Somebody posted that on Facebook. They must have been at a, a conference. It was up, up what the food nutrient value or percentages were in what, 1950 or 30? I can't remember the date to now. I mean, yeah. to me, that's just like, whoa nutrient density of food that's something that uh fred provenza talks about a lot yeah. yeah i don't have my beard going on like for a while i was i was telling my wife because i don't have any hair on top i said fred fred provenza is my my smarter older man doppelganger <laughs> he has i said i want to be like him when i'm older <laughs> fred has an amazing beard or he did last time i saw him it's just it, it was, comes out yeah, it was beautiful it's just this beautiful white beard yeah so i was i always joke about that this is hope maybe maybe the wisdom will come with the beard i don't know because that guy is so smart so <laughs> Some, someday we'll get him on this podcast yeah someday we'll, we'll get around yeah. him elon musk and, and hopefully joe rogan <laughs> <laughs> yeah but yeah, it's for the CSA model, as I say, I can rabbit trail, but the, the, the CSA model is a great model. And I would definitely say for people thinking it, that are listening about kind of dipping their toe into the direct consumer, mm-hmm. it's a great way to go because for one, you get paid up front. That's handy. And then for two, you, you don't end up with these odd cuts. That would be my biggest points on those. Um, We've gone to the model, the delivery model right now. We have the on-farm store. You know, we use Grace Cart. Um, there are other prop, you know, platforms out there. Um, it has its pros and cons. For us, it works. Do you ship or are you all delivery? We have shipped. It's very expensive. Um, at least where we're at. What's that? Yeah, you said expensive, not inexpensive, right? expensive okay yeah. it, it adds a lot we have shipped a couple things not too far out of state um some people that are not in our delivery but the majority of our stuff goes on a weekly delivery or this last year when i was looking at the numbers we've actually our weekly deliveries are about ne- neck and neck with our store but what Annalise would do is somebody would order for on-farm pickup she'd pack the order put it in a freezer at the end of our driveway in a, in a store and they could come at their convenience and pick it up when it worked. And that's growing. And we'd like to push that one a lot more for our more local people. You know, we'll get it, your name's on it, come in. It's already taken care of. That actually works out really slick. What's, what's your model for the on-farm store? Cause I know several, I know there's several different models. I know one um, that's kind of a, a farm store that has operating hours, but it'll set things out for pickup like you described. Um, but if you don't have your order in and it's after hours, wait till tomorrow. And then I know some operations that are basically a, a, a 24 hour come in, get what you need, 
scan your items on the way out and thanks for your business. So which way are you guys going with that? We're looking at going the latter. We're, we're thinking about going where we're going to be open all the time for the most part. Um, where our stores, it's actually at the end of our driveway and there's people around all the time. You know, I'm not too worried about things. And everybody we've talked to that does that model, at the end of the year when, or whenever they figure out their numbers, they've always been ahead, never behind. Because that's always one big concern. What, would somebody come and you know, steal a bunch of ribeyes? You know? And they said, we've never had that. Normally, people just don't even want to make change, and they just leave it the way it is. And you end up ahead at the end of the year. So I thought, well, that's not a bad deal. <laughs> I, and I think that's kind of a kind of a point about theft and people worried about theft from a farm store in this day and age you know a drug addict is more likely to steal the transformer off the back of the building so he can sell the copper for money than he is to go steal food that's he's going to have to keep cold and is going to perish that's going to be difficult to fence if somebody is stealing food out of your store they're probably stealing to eat yeah and in that case we got to figure out why is that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah that, that's a social problem not a criminal problem yeah yeah and where we are we're not i'm not too worried about it so that's we're actually launching this month officially launching the store it's been there it's just not we haven't really advertised it too much except for the on-farm pickup deal which is nice because you can pop over and fill the bags we have these really bright bags with our logo and everything we want people's neighbors to see them that's why we have them that way so when they go by and these housing developments that we bring bring all this stuff into they oh what's that you know it's not an amazon box it's definitely something different it's a walker but, farms food box yeah and when you drive down you you wonder why we drive into places i think you know if we could just service this neighborhood that's all you'd need you know as a as a small family farm you know that that could that's a lot of people and I think that's something else that is underestimated is um, like the amount of food that we can produce and how many that people that will sustain in such a small area. There's a sign somewhere up in Northeast Kansas along the interstate that I can remember going by as I was growing up. And it's every Kansas farmer feeds 55 people in you. And then it was 76 people in you. And then it was like 95 people in you. And then it was over a hundred. And I think it's like, it's over 150 now. Yeah. Yeah. And when you think about it that way, like I don't have to grow food for this giant community. I don't have to serve them. I just have to serve a small part of it. I just have to find that, you know, 150, 200 loyal customers that are going to buy from me most of the time and take care of them and not worry about necessarily trying to, I mean, scalability is a term and, but where's the limit to scalability? Like, do we need to be reaching past that 200 customer mark that can sustain us and sustain our businesses? I mean, just as a hypothetical number, Mm -hmm. our capitalist society wants us to grow and expand because that's how we make money. That's how you get more investment, but that's not necessarily always the longest longest term success option i suppose we don't necessarily need to have things that are scalable past a certain size but they need to be replicatable 
on mm -hmm. massive scale in massive numbers. Yeah. Well, and what is scaling? Is scaling increasing your numbers or in increasing your um, offerings? You know, we offer a lot of things. It sounds like a crazy deal. Well, we also, you know, how do we expand? Well, we sell butter from a Millerville butter that's uh, my dad's back in the day, back in the early 80s, he, he did a lot of bees. Well, this last year, he got back into bees. You know, so he's that eventually is going to be something that will offer his honey. And I think that's kind of part of his retirement plan is, is the bees. He really, really enjoys it, though. It, you know, fills his cup and uh, he made these beehives. They're a totally, I forget what they call them. It's a, it's a different design. But we did get a little honey this year. He did give me some for Christmas. He says, this is the most expensive honey you will ever have. <laughs> <laughs> but eventually it should go. But yeah, instead of expanding numbers or acres, can you stack the enterprises? Um, I think that's definitely a different way to expand for sure. Oh, shifting gears a little bit. Um, before George and I got going today, uh, we were talking a little bit about show world genetics and, and <laughs> lambing and, and farrowing times of year and how we've kind of departed, how some of the pressure from the show world and like we specifically called out 4-H, I'll do it again. You don't have to own that if you don't want to, how some of these programs that are designed to introduce young people into the world of animal husbandry maybe necessarily have led us off the rails in, in as far as what we need to be looking at for animal confirmation, genetics, and just generally how animals need to be cared for to survive in a more natural environment without a lot of uh, inputs. Yeah. Yeah. And Something that uh, my friend Bob Kenford and I have talked about at length, and I think it might have been mentioned in his episode, is, you know, we in the show world, they kind of want the steers to look like heifers and they want the heifers to look like steers. Like they want this uniform rectangle body shape that you kind of have to crawl under underneath and get a close up inspection. to tell. Very true. Yep. They want them to look like blocks. That's what they call them. Bricks. Yeah. And but then on the, on the opposite side, you've got guys like Kit Pharaoh, you've got guys like Doug Ferguson and Johann Zietzman who say that there needs to be a large difference in appearance between your males and your females. Mm -hmm. Specifically, uh, like you want your bulls to look like they're walking uphill when they're on level ground. You want them to be heavy up front, light in the yeah. back. Cows, you want to be the opposite. You want them to look like they're going downhill on level ground, have big butts, big butts and deep guts. Yeah. We don't see that in the show world. No. And something else that we hear repeated in, in the grass fed world and for what we need to be looking at as far as grass fed genetics, we look at hair coat because hair coat is, a, is indicator of hormonal balance and hormonal balance is directly affected by diet. So how are we judging the hair coat on an animal? in a ring when somebody spent three, eight, you know, spent six hours blow drying and coloring and, and trimming mm -hmm. that animal's hair. Like, is that really a fair evaluation of that animal's hormonal balance? Or is it a fair evaluation of that person's grooming skills? 
Well, yeah, very phenotypical. Let's see here. It's mostly hair. It's like a small dog. It looks big, but it's mostly hair. <laughs> so how could we... I see this as kind of an issue. And I hope nobody, I hope I didn't just offend everybody and make everybody tune off while I was throwing a little bit of shade at 4-H. I'm not saying it isn't, I'm not saying there isn't a lot of value in that program and the skills that it teaches young people. What I am saying is, should we look at that and, and should we look at some parts of that and say, maybe this is really not that great for our industry and maybe we should change this. And it's changed dramatically even in in our lifetime we're of similar age so i mean when i was first in 4-h especially in the you've seen it a lot in the swine world at least where we are you know you used to have animals that were judged i remember my dad helping us pick out show animals you know and you're picking out for the meat quality and what, what would you want to bring that a packer would have wanted to buy at the time let's say and it's very different now from what it was then. I mean, the way the animals, you know, your females, you were looking for a mothering ability or what could they, could they produce a calf or produce a litter efficiently and effectively now? Well, we, we can attest to that, especially in the swine side of it, because we, we use 50% Burke and Berkshire pigs in everything. The reason for that is a flavor profile. We found that the fat on a Berkshire is very distinct flavor, but where you struggle to find non-show Berkshire genetics, we've got a couple places we've found that when you can get them, they're good, but we find that those show genetics, when we bring them in, they fall apart. Because we're on, we're on a very, you know, we don't baby things. Everything's, our swine is pasture you know, we, we do farrow up, we have these huts, but it's no crates or nothing like off heavy bedding. And they're, they're outside. They have protection. They have heavy bedding, but a lot of these animals can't, can't perform on that. But in the show ring, they would probably do really well. They are very muscled and, you know, they can hardly walk, <laughs> you know. Do you see the same thing in in the sheep and in the cattle? Yeah, I see it. it personally, I see it a little less so from what we're chasing. I have seen it more in the cattle. The sheep, not so much. We buy our feeders from a friend of ours and then we're doing our own flock now or building up a Katahdin flock, but um, which I used to have in Wisconsin. I used to do my own, uh, I had my own use then, but sold them when we moved here. But in the beef I have, because we, we have bought some feeders in and boy, they, they just lose condition really quick in the fall, comparably to our, our crosses, you know, that are left over from what I was doing. They just don't hold up. If you can get them in their prime and when it's great, and we've got grass up to your belly button, that's great. But once you're past that point, they just do not winter well. And, you know, and that's because they weren't bred that way. They were bred either you know, they got really long legs, you know, that lot of leg and you don't eat a lot of leg on a beef. So I don't quite understand that. Um, they just don't, they, they don't hold up. So they would, if you went into a feed yard. Right. Or, I mean, if, you or could, if you, you can feed condition or fertility into any breed in any environment. 
Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, how do you change that? I don't know. So my, my nephew, he's five, my brother's son, you know, he'll be in 4-H and I, I'm on board. I loved 4-H. I had, I mean, I had great, great experiences, but it has changed. The show ring has changed. I mean, most of the people around us buy their animals as show animals or club calves, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of deal. Um, so my brother's like, well, we're going to have to break it to him because he's going to be taking animals from our farm in there. They just may not do real well on the show ring, but on the rail, when they do their premiums on the rail, they're going to do well. Yeah. So. I, I had a young man from the local high school uh, spend a bunch of time with me last winter, spring and through most of the summer kind of helped him figure out which way he wanted to go when, uh, when he started with me just a little over a year ago coming out, he wasn't quite sure what he wanted to do, but he knew he wanted to do something regarding, you know, outside ranching cows. And by the time we got done with him, or I got done with him and he, he left, he decided that he was going to go to college and he applied for some scholarships and he pretty much got a four-year scholarship to go for um, agronomy with a focus in range management at Kansas State. And that's my little buddy, Keaton Whisk. That's your shout out. So, hi, Keaton. <laughs> I knew that's who you were talking about. I was like, are you going to say his name? Cool. Yep. So, and I'm not sure where I was going with that, but there, there's opportunities out there. And I think that young people don't necessarily understand. Oh, I remember. Keaton grew up showing goats. Okay. And yeah. he'd been around showing cattle. And the first couple of, weeks that we rode around together we spent a lot of time we spent a lot of time just going out and just looking at cows and i was learning from him i was like evaluate this cow like she's in a show ring and tell me tell me about her like give me your honest honest feedback about her and he would and it was it was very instructive and the more more we got to talking when he would go show goats, he would just go to somebody that had goats and pick out a good looking one out of the pasture, go clean it up and then take it to the show ring. And like you said, he never would do that. Well, like he wouldn't do that well being judged against the others, but the same people year after year kept coming back and giving more and more money to buy his show goats. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It teaches other skills, intrinsic skills that you you would get working on a farm, and especially if you don't have that that um in your backyard, like just learning how to keep a schedule, actually having an end goal. Is this is the day of the show? I have to be here with my weight. I have to understand how to feed an animal and and treat it if it gets sick. I think those are things that I think 4-H does really well. And record keeping. <laughs> and record, oh yeah, the record keeping. The record keeping, and that is a whole nother deal. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, there's there's a lot of good good to that. I just I, I would like to see it get back to where we have some using animals. I think we in those those we need to influence that, right? Like they yeah. need to have a class of like because they do have, you know, because my sister in law is actually seventeen, so she does like all of the classes. She does sheep, goat, pig. She's done poultry. She's done sewing. She's done garden. But they do nothing on pasture or rangeland. They do nothing mm. on 
like they, they'll have a dairy class in market steers and market heifers, but they don't have any kind of grass fed situations. And I think that that would be interesting if they could have that, that segment just pulled into that. Right. Have a whole other class. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Extension is usually 10 or 15 years behind us and 4-H is a few years behind extension. Yeah. So, so in 20 years, we'll go. <laughs> there you go. It'll trickle down eventually. I hope. Yeah. No, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see, like I say, when my, my nephew gets in to see what happens and, and where that goes. Cause we, you know, we're not going and buying show animals. They're going to be out of our, our herds. So, and I think on the swine side, we, we have these Burke crosses. We had some Burke Duroc crosses, just beautiful animals. I know on our Facebook, Annalise had them up there, just beautiful animals and beautiful to look at and beautiful to, to look at on the plate too. I mean, they're just delicious. The fat was, you know, you can't, the eating experience was high. So mm -hmm. and that's important. And more important people, I, I mean, some people get kind of down, well, agriculture's, you know, blah, 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 that's not good, this, that, and the other thing. We see a lot of the other side of that in with the direct marketing. That'd be another positive I would put. For example, last night we went, we get some brewer's grains from a small brewery south of us here. Okay. That go to our pigs. We mix in as a protein source. It's a pretty small part of our ration, but it does help offset some of the protein costs. Um, and some of it, we end up just composting, but we've gotten to know these guys now over the last couple of years. And so we took some folks that actually help us put your chickens. Annalise and I went out with them last night and we were sitting there having our beer. And one of the owners comes up right behind me. I had my Walker farms sweater on and he slaps me on the back and he's like, Oh, it's our favorite farmers really loud, you know, and there's what a hundred people in here. These are our favorite farmers, and oh, thanks for the, what do we give? We gave them a ham for Christmas. That's the best ham I've ever had, you know, and I was just giddy. I was giddy all the way. I got back from chores for breakfast. I was telling Lisa, I said, you know, I just have to remember that mm -hmm. when we're out there dealing with, you know, something, you know, that happens and go, you know what, this, people care. You sometimes wonder, you're like, everybody's like, well, nobody cares what we're doing, but they do. They care. I mean, it just made me, I still makes me happy today, but it's that, you know, people, we get a lot of good stuff like that. And that actually helps. I think that's, you know, that's a cool story. Thanks. Thanks for sharing. So I want to know what your favorite hobby is off the farm. My favorite hobby off the farm. Well, what we need to get you back into <laughs> we have an airplane, so I fly. I'm a pilot, so we got a 1961-72, and we're really lucky. Our I, my dream world would be if we sold here, and I, I'd like to move and have my own grass strip and everything. I think that'd be awesome. But we're only about four miles from the airport in Princeton, okay? So we have a hangar there. So when I get a chance, I, I like going flying. Um, that's one of my big things. I play music. I write music. So I've been doing that for, oh, I don't know, since I was 12. Um, so in the summertime, I'll go, what's that? What instruments do you play? Uh, dobro, guitar, mandolin. What um, is a dobro? Uh, steel, like a steel guitar. Okay. Have you ever, uh, you know, Jerry Douglas? 
uh, he's a world-renowned Dobro player. It's on player. a stand, though, right? Uh, mine actually, you can strap. It's like a guitar. Only yeah. it's the strings are up higher. You couldn't actually press it down like a guitar. You got to use a bar. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's not my best. I mean, guitar is probably my best instrument as far as what I play a lot. But I go and play at the breweries or we have a pizza farm. We call it It's Elf Omega Farm that we sell meat to um, in, in the summer. Every Thursday they do wood fired pizzas. So and they have live music. So I'll go play there every once in a while. So that's that's kind of my thing. <laughs> wood fired pizza sounds delicious. Yeah, well, you'll have to come on up sometime and take you out. <laughs> well, you, you mentioned that one of these days I might I might go back to flying and take a look at my pilot's license. Um, I kind of I took a break from it because money got a little tight for a while. So, you know, one of the first things that needs to go is put on the shelf is flight training. Then we had the wildfire. Then I got wrapped up in clearing trees. And then I hurt myself. My eye, and since I've had that cataract surgery, my eyes are a little are a little strange. Oh, yeah. Um, next time I, I have an eye doctor appointment in a couple of months, I'll have to I'll ask him if it's okay to okay if I can do that. And then probably have to go back and redo a flight physical and and yeah. get my students get my students permit up to date. But I did have uh, thirty somewhere between thirty two and thirty four hours. Um, towards my license, um, still had to do the cross countries, some solos, um, night flight and class B. But other than that, I pretty much had everything checked off. I soloed at eight and a half hours. Oh, you did really good. Yeah. Well, I, I, my instructor, we were, he was teaching me, uh, I don't know what year, but I think it was a, it was a Cessna 150 H model and it had some, had some flap seals and some other short takeoff tricks on it. Mm. we flew off of a 1200 foot grass strip with a 150 there you go like that's where i learned i learned barefoot in a 150 off of a 1200 foot grass strip that had on one end there was a a cornfield and a corn pivot like there were pivot tracks across the south end of the runway <laughs> the north end of the runway there was a highway right across the threshold um, the hangar was on one side of the north end and there was an electric substation on the other end and coming in on approach you had to come over on final you had to come over two sets of power lines a railroad track and the highway and dump all your flaps in so you can get down in there <laughs> yeah, that was yeah that was coming in from the north with the south wind or if the wind was out of the north you were coming over that corn pivot and trying to make sure you missed all the gopher holes and wheel tracks yeah yeah that would do it yeah but it, no, I don't. I go to. We got a couple little strips. We go up in Battle Lake, where our lake place is. The they have a grass strip. The airport's a mile from our place, so Elise and I fly up there a lot. We we want to get a little vehicle to stick up there. You know, usually we walk or have my dad or grandpa come get us. But and then with the airplane, we're I'm really lucky. So my mechanic, he works for Saint Cloud Aviation, but he's trying to build ours, so he flies our airplane. So we just trade time for time. Ah, so my annuals and everything we just trade hours i buy the parts he trade and then we have another gentleman who's actually uh a maintenance guy out on the wildlife refuge out here he's trying to build hours so he flies it too so we have a couple people that we that helps offset some of the 
I've had a couple of times, but I've been, you know, all, you know, really, should we be paying, you know, for this or have this? And Annalisa is actually the one that puts the kibosh on that every time. <laughs> She's like, no, we're not selling the airplane. So we used to have a 150. And like I say, her folks are up in Virginia, Minnesota. It's about a three hour drive, but it's about a 40 minute flight to go to Eveleth, which is just down the road. And one time we were taken off, it was just myself and Annalise, and we had two dogs at the time, and it was warm. And there was a high pucker factor coming out of there. So <laughs> I was like, you know what? Maybe we need to think about getting something that's got a little bit higher useful load. <laughs> For those that don't understand, a 150 is a wonderful training airplane. They're very economical to operate. But if more than you, your instructor, and a map want to go anywhere, you need to have something bigger. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not a big guy, I weigh about 160 pounds. And my flight instructor is very, very similar size or very similar height, weight, like limb length. Didn't have to adjust the seats or belts when we swapped positions. And I could tell a huge difference when he wasn't in the plane. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Well, it's like flying a leaf. That's what I always said. You know, compared to the 172, which is, you know, it's four seater. Ours is a 1960. So it with the fastback. So it's, Okay. Thousand pound useful loads. It's, it's a nice airplane and it, you know, it cruises, cruises nice. And you can pack a bottle of water and a map. Oh yeah. Yeah. We can, (laughs) we've had four, we had Lisa and myself and then my cousin and her fiance and he was, you know, linebacker. So he's like, what, two ten, And, you know, we, it was, we did it. It worked. (laughs) But a lot of times what we do is we just take the back seat out because it's usually just Lisa and I and put the dogs back there and go wherever. We, we, we couldn't load that thing enough, I don't think. so. Another thing that's really fun to do in a 150 is get up about 5,000 feet, hang all the flaps out, and pull the power to see if you can go backwards in the wind. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, <laughs> I think I probably had about 10 hours. Uh, my instructor took me up, and there was about a 50-knot wind at 5,000 feet. We went up there, got her dirty, and we were going backward. We were making negative seven over the ground. Yeah. But the 150, when we were coming, we had the 150 when we were working on moving back up here and we were coming up and looking at properties and stuff. And I remember coming in on a windy day and I was flying to the West and you'd look down and the cars on the highway were going a little bit faster than you. (laughs) But on the way home, we were going 128 miles an hour or something <laughs> like that on the ground. So, well, there we go. Yeah, that's a nice trip. Yeah. Yeah, 150s are great. I think around here, I'd need something a little bit bigger. I mean, just because of the wind. If there was no wind, oh, yeah. if there wasn't going to be the chance of that 50, 60 mile an hour headwind, it wouldn't be that bad. But you need no. something You need something a little quicker than 150 out here to be able to buck yeah. the winds and travel anywhere. Yeah. No, that's for sure. One of the first times that I soloed, um, we were doing we were doing uh, touch and goes in the pattern, and like we come in for the second one, my instructor said, "Go ahead, full stop, take and go up to the hangar." Okay, went right up to the hangar, and he just got out. Mm-hmm. Like, go do that three more times. Okay, so I did it three more times, and then he jumped on the radio and said, "Now fly to Pratt and get gas." like 15 miles away it's like okay (laughs) i flew to pratt and got gas well little did i know while i was messing around the pattern focusing on what i was doing 
he got his R44 helicopter out and got up in the air and was watching me fly. Oh, really? Yeah. Really? So I, yeah, my instructor was chasing me around with his helicopter watching me fly. You don't hear that every day. No, and I didn't even <laughs> know it until I was on my way back from Pratt. And he's like, yeah, we're, uh, you know, we're about a mile behind you and 2,000 feet up on the left. Just, just watching you. Just wanted to let you know we were here. Like, oh, well, thanks. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't get to fly as much as I want right now is, well, when it's this cold is the best time to go, really. I mean, the air is so dense. But that was one Annalise got me for Christmas, well, two years ago now. I got a fancy deal on my phone. So if I'm thinking about going fly and I can actually turn my block heater on from my phone. Get the airplane nice and warmed up. Gets her nice and toasty beforehand. But even in, our heater is pretty good, but even with that, yeah, she's pretty chilly in there. There's not a whole lot of insulation in those things. <laughs> no, I, I can remember some, uh, some pretty cold flights. Cause like I said, I, I learned barefoot cause that's how he flew. Okay. You want to fly barefoot? I mean, I normally wear big, you know, big giant work boots. Mm -hmm. They didn't exactly fit in the footwell of the 150. Oh. So like the first day I went up for my first flight, I was wearing my work boots. And he's like, those aren't even going to fit in the airplane. You're just going to take them off. I'm like what, what fly without shoes. And he's like, I do it all the time. Okay. Fair enough. So, you know, jump in the plane, throw the boots behind the seat and go. And that's just how I learned to fly. Yeah. No, I always keep a pair of, you know, old sneakers or something at the hangar just in case I, Oh, I'm going to go flying and to make sure if I have my work boots, cause I don't, I can't, I don't even like having them like a hard sole shoe on or something. It's too much with the, in my opinion, but everybody's got their thing, I guess. There was one day that it was, it was pretty cold and I wore my tennis shoes and I didn't like it about halfway through the flight. I just, I had to kind of scoot the seat back a little bit and get my shoes off, threw them behind the seat and kept going. Yeah. It was, it's just, just that little difference in feel matters so much. Yeah. Well, yeah, on 150, you don't have to do too much with the rudder, but even in the 172, it's not too bad, but yeah, you like to know what's going on. <laughs> well, crosswinds are life in Kansas. Like wind is. Yeah. Yeah. There was one day I was landing and the wind switched like while I was on the roll. All of a sudden I'm like going down. It's not stopping. It's not stopping. Like, what the hell's going on? And I looked at the windsock and the windsock was at my back. And I'm like, wait a minute. I just went around and I swear I was landing into a headwind because I'm not that dumb. No, it does that. We go up to Brainerd for breakfast every once in a while. And that airport, yeah, the wind changes a lot. One time we came in and I, I told her, I said, we're going to make an approach in here. And if, if we're not comfortable, we're leaving, we'll go home. Got her landed, went in, have breakfast. And this guy came in and a, a cub. And I thought, oh man, this is going to be interesting. I mean, he had the tail end of that thing, trying to stop it up. I said, well, if he can do it, I guess we'll be okay. Because <laughs> it, was, it was a little too windy for being out in a cub, in my opinion. <laughs> Depends on how much motor's hanging off the front, but yeah, if we're just talking yeah. about you know, your, your standard yellow J3 Cub, yeah, it sounds like it was a little bit breezy for him that day. Yeah, so, nope, so that, that's, that's the stuff we do. We don't go flying, go, I like, we like to go to the lake. We don't get there as much as we want. Annalise likes going fishing a lot, so we don't. We're, that's one thing about going to RFP. It's like, we got to get it. We got to be able to get away. 
sometime. You got you to gotta structure it so you can do that getaway so you don't get burned out. That is definitely one thing that they, they encourage in a school is to take time for the people. And I think kind of dance around it a little bit, but one of the big concepts that they really spend a lot of time on at Ranching for Profit is talking about the people dynamic and, and about how to deal with people problems. Yeah. Um, in fact, one of the, one of the former instructors, I'll name him Alan Crockett. Cause he won't mind me saying that Alan Crockett is kind of famous for saying every problem is a people problem. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah, that's, that's not what I mean. We were all, I mean, you're probably like me. I, I, I prefer going out and not having any people around, but that's not maybe healthy all the time either. <laughs> oh, and that's a people problem of a different sort. I would uh, exactly I would say. Oh. So, well, is there is there anything I forgot to ask you, George, that you need to, that we need to talk about today? Not that I can think of offhand. I mean, maybe we'll have to get together again sometime and dive deeper into some of this, you know, direct marketing, which stuff like that, because I think it has a place. I think. I think it's one of those things that we got to be very careful about how we approach it because I would say a direct marketing end of your farm could take your farm or ranch down just as fast as having a, you know, hundred percent open cows. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, you got to, I think it's a great thing. It's something that we're, we're trying to refine, you know, because of the people issues, you know, the people part of it, how do we do this and do it well and do it, um, so that we can step away from it if we want to or need to. So, yeah, those kinds of things. There's, I don't know. I think we covered a bunch of stuff. This was a this was a good time. I've kind of kind of spoiled to be able to do this in the afternoon here. So. Well, I, I sure appreciate you taking time out of your day um, to do this, especially on kind of short notice. So, where can we find you on social media? Um, so we got Walker Farms LLC. It'll be Princeton, Minnesota um, for Facebook. I'm sure you can find it there. Our website is um, walkerfarmsmn.com. So it's plural and then mn.com. Um, that's probably the best way to catch us. Uh, I don't do the the TikTok and the whole, they're trying to get me to do that stuff. I'm working on it, but pretty much I'm old school, the Facebook messenger. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing yeah. Wrong with so, that. I know Annalise's on some of the other ones. My brother's on uh, Instagram and stuff like that. So I will, uh, I will apply my Google magic and see what other links I can come up with and make sure they get in the show notes page. Well, that's very much appreciated. So CK. Thanks for joining us, even though it was a was a little bit late. I, I, I'm, I'm not throwing shade. There's a little little time zone confusion, but I'm glad you I'm glad you were uh, able to. I'll up to it. Happen to cut fire <laughs> the last two hours. Yeah. Yes. Well, it was nice to actually talk with you, George, because I always appreciate all your feedback and feel like you're one of our best listeners. So. Yeah, I, I'm addicted. I'll admit. I'm... I'm George, and I do have a problem. I like podcasts, <laughs> especially this one. 
Well, thank you. Thank you. We're, uh, we're going to try to keep episodes coming out weekly. So awesome. All right. I think we're going to go ahead and get out of here. Any final thoughts going once, oh. going twice. All right, y'all have a great week. Take care.